0: it's an interesting handshake that you acquire when you are working with people who could easily put you in a ditch. And so I think of those times when I'm at conferences and I shake hands of people and I think in my head, they're never going to kill me. This is fantastic.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast where we talk about how legalization is changing Americans' lives. Today we're talking to locals from the Emerald Triangle, a more than 10,000 square mile swath of three counties of forested hills in Northern California, many of them scattered with hidden pot farms. Since the 1970s, it's been the largest cannabis producing region in the nation some say yielding more than half the weed in America. With California just legalizing recreational marijuana sales this year, finance experts are predicting a $5 billion market during year one for the Golden State. You'd think that people here, at the epicenter of the supply, would be rejoicing, but that's not necessarily the case. We're going to talk to a second-generation organic farmer, we talked to an environmentalist that came here in the 70s, as well as a trimmigrant, which is a common term for someone who comes to a farm to trim weed for 12 hours a day. While there are many stories from the Triangle, many of them speak to the fact that the Triangle up until now has thrived as a kingdom of secrets. While secrecy has been key to staying free and in business, secrecy has also meant that many crimes go unreported in the triangle. The black market is not a laughing matter in these parts. It's as dark as the name implies. Today we look at whether this underground heritage farm culture can survive legalization and whether the region wants it to. Tell me uh, how legalization, for better or worse, might affect your job and your livelihood, or already has affected your job and livelihood?
0: I almost spit out my orange juice at this question.
1: That's Siobhan Danger-Darwish, one half of the dynamic duo known as the Grow Sisters, a pair of second-generation farmers from Humboldt County. Siobhan grows weed and has done so for 17 years. Last year, however, was the first year that she actually went legal after California legalized recreational marijuana.
0: It has affected me in so many positive ways. It has done so many incredible, beautiful things for myself, but that's not the point. It has done so many positive things for our economy, for our people in need of medication. It has done a lot of really great things. For myself, I, you know, was able to, with legalization, share who I am and what I do and what I believe in. Um, with that being said, it has really been a terrible pain in the rear. Um, it's been really difficult.
1: Siobhan is 34, a charming grin, hip, thick-framed glasses, and colorful tattoo sleeves on her upper arms. Siobhan has been farming since she was a kid. In recent years, she has been growing with her sister and husband on their family farm, Blessed Coast Farms. Her farm is her life. Her community is her life. And while she's surfing on the success of her Grow Sister's social media campaign, she said that, like most small farms, a lot has changed for her. Her sister is no longer allowed on the farm because she's underage, and she's doing worse financially now. She worries every day about whether her farm will make it.
0: You know, as a small farmer, we struggle. We were on Bless Coast farms this year. This is not something that we've admitted until now. On Blessed Coast Farms, we had to lower our um, square footage so that we could even afford the taxes that we got this year. On top of mortgage, on top of taxes, not to mention that my farm is also my home. A lot of people's farms are not their homes. This is my home. I can't lose my home. I can't stop working. If I want to continue the Blessed Coast brand, I need to be there. You know, and so yeah it's absolutely hard I mean the the prices plummeted um the first year that we had the uh, permit there was you could get a cultivation permit but you couldn't there was no dispensary wanted to buy from us because we were taxable so two thousand sixteen was like a complete wash for us because the you know officials that were in charge of doing um the 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 taxation they figured out how to tax the the cultivators, but then they didn't have any regard to line it up for us to where we would sell our product. There was no lien on any of the dispensaries to um, you know, buy our legal product. And so that became a major problem.
1: A large reason for her concern is the change in California's regulations last year. While the state initially planned to put a cap on farm acreage, the state changed the rules last minute. Removing the cap will now allow corporate entities to compete with small-scale farms who either will sell out, dissolve, or remain on the black market.
0: We're seeing legalization has really changed our community in a major way. And, you know, a lot of people want to say, oh, well, <clears throat> you know, those dope growers in the hills, they, you know, should have seen it coming or blah dee da da The thing is, is that those cannabis cultivators believed in medication and they continued to grow cultivate cannabis in a medicinal fashion. Those people that are being looked down upon are families. They're women. They're single mothers. You know, there's a lot behind the story that we are all getting really caught up in, in this big um, excitement, this big wave that's happening in the cannabis industry. But we're not really looking at The, um, you know, the people who were there for cannabis, a lot of people that I know that were even going for the licensing, they pulled out and they decided to just continue in the black market. The black market is going to stay strong for a minute. (laughs) It's It's not. Unfortunately, their prices have plummeted. But I mean, we're seeing that in the legal market, too. So
1: we'll see. While Siobhan is fighting to stay afloat, the same as all the rest, she certainly has the experience and grit to remain a fierce competitor. Farming is second nature to Siobhan since she learned the trade at a young age from her late father.
0: My father taught me how to grow. He, well, I don't know if taught me how to grow or forced me to work on the farm is more accurate. <laughs> thanks, but, Dad. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Dad. So he he had a farm in Mendocino County, which is, um, you know, Mendocino, Trinity, and Humboldt are the core of the Emerald Triangle. And um, my father grew up and down, all up and down the coast. He grew in Oregon for multiple years. He grew in Southern California. Um, But he found that the climate in Humboldt was the best, in Mendocino was the best. And he really liked being there. And so for years, he had a a farm there. And, um, you know, he also realized that he didn't necessarily want his kids to grow up on a farm. And so he sent us to go to school in another state, which was always really hard for me um, because he was taking money out of the triangle and paying for us to go to school elsewhere or, you know, paying for a home elsewhere. And I that always kind of got to me. And so when I started cultivating in the triangle, I stayed in the triangle and I bought homes and I put money back into the community. And I think that that was a really big thing for me to realize was that there was a lot of farmers that were coming to the Emerald Triangle, making money and taking it out of the community. Were you
1: aware of the stigma that surrounded your father's profession at that
0: time? Absolutely. Um, So in my younger years of living in Southern California, you know, everyone gets put through the D.A.R.E. program. You remember the D.A.R.E. program? Yes. (laughs) Just Uh, say no. Yeah, just say no. So you know, as soon as I came home with the dare paperwork, I think I was, you know, fourth or fifth grade. And I remember my dad being like, Oh, we're going to go to an angels game tomorrow, you know, or whatever. And, and we, and we didn't finish the, the dare program, you know? And so. Um, oh,
1: he took but, you out of it.
0: Yeah. He took, he, <laughs> we went, we went to see a baseball game instead. Yeah. Um, you know, and so in my younger years, it was, it was, it was my aunts smoked. It was, you know, just as it was smoking, smoking cannabis was the same as drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes. It was something that the adults did. And in, in my younger years in in Southern California um, you know, it was not really a concern of mine. I knew it was around. I knew what it was. I knew that the adults did it when they got together and there was a party or Thanksgiving or, you know, something like that. And no big deal. Um, into, my high school years, I absolutely learned very quick. And, um, the term loose lips sink ships became very real. Um, I started living a, I actually haven't told anyone this. This is really interesting. Um, I started living a dual life, uh, all through high school because I knew what my father did. And I knew that if I mentioned anything to anyone that he would go to prison, um, I was, Raised in Park City, Utah, my father did not want me to go to school in Garberville at the time in the in the 90s, you know, um, there was very little going on in Garberville. And uh, so my father put us to school in Park City, Utah, I went to Park City High School, where it is a very uh, Mormon dominated uh, culture. And you learn really quick to answer that your father was a, was a contractor, you know, that he built homes. And uh, the reality of him going to prison was very real. And so it was really hard to be at home and, you know, shipments of large amounts of cannabis would be around, you know, and and this is all black market stuff. Thank goodness he's dead. I can say these things, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, but so, so, you know, I was very much so around it at home and then would go to school and would have to live a completely different life and not say anything. And so I learned the value really quickly of not talking, you know, of, of being very tight-lipped, of being very conscious of what was going on around me. And then, when I moved out to Humboldt County and, and everyone, I I felt like I found my community. I felt like I had really found my people because I could talk about it and, and be open and not have to, um, you know, hide that. And then with legalization, it branched out from my community into the world at large. And so really being able to share Grow Sisters and, you know, talk about things like this on, on podcast. I'm just in complete shock constantly that I am sharing who I am, what I believe in and what I do legally. And it's been really liberating.
1: At conferences and dispensaries in the media, Siobhan is really open about who she is, what she does. And it's bizarre for her to think back about how recently she was operating in a world that was all about handshakes and instinct rather than contracts and law. It's a world that is still very much alive, but not one she hopes to ever operate in again. And she wants her fellow farmers out of it as soon as possible.
0: The black market is very fucking dangerous. There are bodies that end up all over the hills of the Emerald triangle because of people trying to steal from other people or deals going wrong. That's why legalization has been a good thing. Um, you know, and absolutely, the black market is a very scary Place to find yourself um you know there's the fear of being ripped off there's the fear of the feds coming in um you live under constant um you live in a constant shadow where you're not admitting who you are or you know you have to not expose yourself or invite people to your house. Um, you know, we joke. There's there's things that I can tell you that we joke about. Um, when I was in my 20s and I would go to a bar, it was almost a rude question for someone to ask you, what do you do? What do you do was a question that in the Emerald Triangle, people never asked because it was rude, because it would be outing someone that they were a grower and nine times out of 10, someone that you met was a dope grower, you know? And so, you know, there was a lot of uh, that, you know, and I, I miss some aspects of the black market because handshakes on the dirt road are, you know, seem to be a lot more stable than um, a lot of the contract trickery that we are dealing with today. Um, with that being said a lot of contracts and um, paperwork has really saved a lot of aspects of my business and so I'm grateful for that however you know it's it's a tricky one it's it's a tricky transition to move from the black market into a legal market because you want to continue to do the you know work at that that you did in the black market but you can't because it's it's no longer legal, you know? And so that has been a major change for a lot of farmers in my community, you know, um, doing, doing work different. We are doing work completely different than what we were. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a major change.
1: When you said there are bodies all over the hills, like, I mean, is that, are you being facetious or is that? Are you kidding
0: me? You've never, you've never heard of the Emerald Triangle? You've never heard of mass Mm. bodies ending up on Murder Mountain? Yes, absolutely. Is there an actual
1: Murder Mountain?
0: So there's not an actual Murder Mountain, but the, the community has named it Murder Mountain because every year there's multiple deaths, there's multiple people going missing. Murder
1: Mountain? Yeah, it's a real place. And yes, a number of bodies have been discovered there in recent years. Many of them deemed murder victims. Other people are still missing in the triangle their cases unsolved it,
0: it, the 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 industry so as a child, me growing up, it was hippies in the hills supporting their community. It moved quickly. It was almost like I want to say like five or six years ago it really went downhill and a lot of the um, home you know family, farms and stuff, we started seeing less family and more of the people coming in to what we would call slash and grab. And um, just in, in it for the money, you know? And I think that ultimately that was one of the reasons that the government was like, look, we, we have to step in, you know, not, not only because this is a true medication, but because, and, and there's profit to be made, of course, but because, you know, there was a lot of really, nasty things happening in the hills of the, 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 the tri-counties, you know, and, and that's really unfortunate, but it's just the fact, I mean, you can look it up in any newspaper, any publication, yes, there are multiple, there's a lot of people who have disappeared and been buried in the hills of, of the Emerald Triangle, and it's really unfortunate, and that's really the dark side of the industry, and I really hope that as we move into legalization, you know, of course, that memory fades and that the emerald triangle starts being looked at as the largest and best cultivation uh center for cannabis in the world versus Mm -hmm. you know dominated by black market
1: yeah not only has the black market protected serious criminals, but it's allowed for the decimation of habitat in the triangle. I met 75-year-old Simone Whipple, an environmentalist at heart, who moved to the Emerald Triangle in 1973 as part of the Back to the Land movement. Back to the Landers were a countercultural movement that believed in self-sustainability. They moved to the mountains and built their lives literally from the ground up.
2: Um, nobody came up to grow pot. It was all people who wanted to have a different kind of lifestyle. And the um, and I think we did grow some and but it wasn't since Cinsea. We were just happy to have a little something. And then either the following year or the year after that, one of our friends had we heard had sold a pound for a $1,000 in the city and that was and that was 1974. Yeah, wish. 74, 75. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Back then. Yeah, we were impressed. I mean, it's a lot of money now to me. <laughs> well, then it it did go up to 5,000 a pound at, and 6,000 at the height. Those were just the humble beginnings of the triangle. In time,
1: the local loggers and fishermen whose industry was suffering jumped on the bandwagon too. And soon enough, Pretty much everyone in the triangle was tied to weed in some way. But in the past five or six years, cartelish operations have moved into the area. Some of the groups from Mexico, others from Southeast Asia, and most predominantly in Simone's area, Bulgarians from Eastern Europe.
2: I don't know who with whom they're associated, but they come in with tons of cash and they'll buy a place and then they level off hillsides. They're doing tremendous environmental damage.
1: Simone said that the Bulgarians are often nice people, but they use bribes to make discontent neighbors happy. Never would she sell her land to any group that planned to use toxic chemicals and poor farming practices. She came to the Triangle in the first place to preserve the land using sustainable practices.
2: And I could have made a ton of money. Like, people were selling things for a million of dollars. So, um, but I I care too much about the land. It's not even on my radar.
1: While farmers and criminals may be entering an uphill battle with legalization, one group that stands to benefit from legalization is the farm workers, assuming they are still eligible to apply for such a job in the legal industry. I say that because a lot of people that currently work on the farms are hitchhikers, vagabonds, and many of them foreign. So some have visas, others don't. Those who are ineligible could be out of work come future harvests. But here's the thing, the workers are completely vulnerable on the black market. Many travelers hitchhike to town, sometimes they hop in a van or truck with a stranger who promises a job, sometimes the workers are even blindfolded before being taken to the farm, down a dirt road, miles into the hills. If something bad happens, you may not have a car to get away, assuming you even know where you are. You're also working an illegal job, so going to the police could be out of the question, and you run the risk of being blacklisted in the community. I'd heard accounts of terrible things happening, rape, sexual assaults, and harassment, and also just fights. So I talked to a trimigrant in the Triangle, Pierangela Araya.
3: In general, I have have like good experience in farms. The time I don't feel good or I don't have like a good feeling, I go out straight away. And we have listened after we left from farms that things have happened there. So it's good, the feelings when we don't feel good or feel comfy. That's us we go.
1: Pierangela is a trimigrant, originally from Chile. She has long curly hair and a rich husky laugh. She's a chef by trade and travels the world seasonally to cook whenever she's most needed. But every fall, she returns to California to work on the pot farms. On the farms, her job is to trim the most important parts of the plant. She's worked on a number of farms in recent years, and this year worked for a male farmer. She said the farm is one of the better ones that she's worked on.
3: There, there are lots of farms that they have like, I don't know, like, we call it like crazy people for a little bit because they have like different personalities. I said like three polars. I don't know, like bipolars, three polars. They have like three oh, different personalities. Oh, yeah.
1: In case you missed that, she's saying that farmers are not only bipolar, but they can be tripolar.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. And I understand they're like all year in the farm sometimes. So it's like have to be something for, I don't know, farmers sometimes are really crazy. But I feel as well that they are really good people here. So we've been lucky to have like good places.
1: Not only are some farmers under the influence of alcohol and drugs, but a lot of them are armed, mainly because of the fear of trespassers, but also the feds. For a lot of people, especially ones from outside of the country, weapons on site can be unsettling. The workers grind all day, sometimes for a pocket's worth of wages, meanwhile living in tents, cars, or crowded spaces and working without any protected rights. It can
3: be scary. It's people that go really sad from here, it's people that go really happy. But I think they were like, I don't know, in the worst farm I was in my life, I met the best people, Mm. you know? It was like, it was a really bad farm. Uh, The farmer was, like, angry with me, not sexual abuse or nothing, but he was, like, really angry, like, shouting at me. And I was like, I work in a kitchen for 10 years. I shout to people a lot. They shout to me a lot. But you're not my father. You're not anyone. Not even my father it like that, like, come on, relax. But sometimes they take so much drugs that they react in a way that is like, hey, relax, I'm not in your same way. But you can see some farmers, they're taking drugs all day. So when I see that, I go,
1: a lot of the times, these farmers hire women. The farmer I spoke with said that they're better workers, they have better attitudes, and they're better cooks. But it wasn't hard to see that he'd hired a number of beautiful young women, most of them from Brazil. I asked Pierangela whether that ever bothered her.
3: I think, of course, like farmers as well, if you're a guy and you have a farm, you will get girls for your dreaming for your season. Like, why not? It's like, I understand that as well. They said that we work better, someone smoke less, (laughs) not my case, I think, but some of them smoke less. They eat less as well That I cook, so I know that. But but they eat healthy, so it's more expensive as well. And I think, I don't know, they use all the toilet together. It's easy sometimes. So people sometimes think like, no, they only want girls Mm. to do stuff like that. In some places, yes. But some places it's only because it's easy, I think, to have only girls as well. Uh, Me personally, I have never... Happened nothing to me, and I'm lucky for that. I'm really like happy. I always said like, I have my angel, it's my mm. mom. <laughs> but I'm always really careful. I I prefer to don't get a job if I don't feel comfy. Like that's it. I'm like nah, I'm not going there. I prefer to be in the hotel calling people. But I don't know if I'm gonna get like a job on the supermarket or stuff like that. My friends, the one that I'm here. They got really good jobs on the petrol station, on the supermarket. They always told me, like, good contacts out on the street. Mm. But I feel you need to be lucky, and that's a little bit of this job. It's, like, lucky as well, and feeling a little bit, soul, I don't know, yeah. to, like, yeah, have luck a little bit. And if you don't feel good, I always tell the girls, if you don't feel good, go. That's it. And one of my big deals is, like, never do, how do you call it, like, stop. Hiking when you travel.
1: Oh, hitchhiking?
3: Yeah. I don't know. I listen here in Mendocino, like in this side. It's lots of like uh, race people. They're like, take you or something. So me personally, I don't do it. Hmm. Um, do you have a car? Yeah. We, this year we have a car. Like last year we didn't have a car. It gives you a lot of security that to have a car because if you don't like the place, you can like live. So it's really good. You don't need to wait for someone that bring you down to town or like wait for anything. Even if I don't like a place and I haven't get paid, I will go. If I it's not much money on that, I prefer to go.
1: And so, do you do you make a lot of money here to be able to afford? All I'm that not or? I'm not really really
3: really fast because I told you it's really difficult to me to stay like 12 13 hours concentrating a church. But uh, I think here in Australia is the two countries I make more money per hour per day for sure. So I can really work maybe six months a year only. So mm-hmm. I work six months a year and then I go to like cheapest countries to live. So yeah. it's like my way. But yeah, if you, if you get in a good place, you can make really good money. Yeah. But if you're in a bad place, you can get maybe $5 per hour or something like that. Oh, Some places really? they pay you only $80 per pound or stuff like that. And it's really bad weed, so you can't even really make a pound a day. Here it's
2: you get like two fifty a day.
3: Here a day. Is the one hundred twenty five per pound, but there are days that we make one, and this week we have like really good weed We make like three pounds per day, mm. so it was like it was really good for a week. So some weeks you are really lucky, you get good weed, yeah. and even if it's a hundred, there you can make three, four, five a day, which yeah. is nice. But then you get the other one, and
1: and then and so how does it work on most farms? Do they you stay in, like, the tents and...
3: Most of them, yeah, you sleep in tents. Sometimes they give you, like, you can sleep inside the greenhouse because they're already empty. Mm. So for keep a little bit more the winter, they go, like, yeah, put your tents inside. This year we have the car, so we sleep in the car. Um, it's pretty warm, actually. It was all right. Uh, some places they give you... Um, I don't actually have one. Some places they give you houses but last year, I didn't want to sleep there because it was, like, too much people sleeping together. I prefer to be in my tent by myself. Yeah, yeah one of the guys in the night, uh, one of the girls woke up, and the guy was like, how do you say, I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was masturbating. Yeah, masturbating, yeah. looking at them in the night when they were sleeping. So it was mm-hmm. like, bro, like, what, what are you doing? And they was like, masturbating there in the night. So they're kicking them off from the farm. N- like, next day morning, out of the farm. That was really good for me in the sense that the first problem we have. It was out. Then it was a fight of, like, these guys. There was, like, it was not a couple, but they was together in the farm. And the girl kicked, like, the girl pushed him. Mm. So the girl was kicked out of the farm as well. I was good. Oh, she punched she, him? Yeah, she punched him. Oh, so yeah. she punched him. And it was like, hey, but the girl, like, and yeah. he didn't react. That was good. And they kicked the girl out of the farm as well next morning. Wow. So in that sense, I feel I've been in good place because when things have happened, Straight away, like, you go out. Even yeah. if you get sick. If you get sick, they'll take you out of the farm because you can get sick, all the people. If you get Whoa. a big flu or something, most of the time you can lose your job. Oh, Yeah, no. and it's, it's difficult to don't get sick oh. because it's really cold. You sleep outside. You are, like, getting cold. Sometimes you're not eating good because some places don't give you food. So people get sick. And when you get sick or something, it's like you lose the job.
1: Does that ever worry you not having, like, because you probably can't go to the... I always travel
3: with, uh, I I always, I have learned that in my life. I've been nine years traveling. So I learned in my life, you need to spend like $300, $400 a year and buy insurance. Mm -hmm. I like, yeah, like every, I can use it in every country. I have insurance. It's only like a big emergency. But it have helped me. In Thailand, I was one with like a big bacteria in the leg for a mosquito bite. So I was near the, like, cut my leg pretty much. And with insurance, I was safe, like... It saved me like $20,000 in that moment. Wow. So, for I, dis, I have always been traveling with my insurance. Mm. It's like my Christmas present or like my own birthday present, but I know I need to spend that money. Yeah. And I always said that to people here because people travel with like no insurance. Never. It's like, nah, nah, nothing's gonna happen. So, when you're in countries like this where it's expensive, it's like, bro, you need to have insurance. It's your life. Even if something happened and you died, send you to your country. It's really expensive.
2: Yeah.
1: While Pierangela is thankful that she's never had to experience any uncomfortable situations herself, she's hopeful that legalization not only protects the workers, but their jobs too, since many of the people currently working in the Triangle are travelers and foreigners. It was nice.
3: You can can learn a lot of stuff in the dream room when you want, like a lot, because you have People from every culture, every country. Mm. So, if you really propose yourself, like I have learned Portuguese a little bit, you have learned like a little bit of French. It's yeah. nice. You can learn if you want. If you like, it's 12 hours a day in a chair. So, you need to like <laughs> use your mind and learn. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast, a production of the Reno Gazette Journal and the USA Today Network. I'm your host, Jenny Kane, and my editors are Brian Dugan and Kelly Scott, also of the Reno Gazette Journal. Big thank you to Shannon Green, our consultant over at USA Today, but the biggest thank yous to everyone who spoke with us in the triangle. To Simone, Pierangela, and Siobhan, we know it was a huge deal to open up to a reporter when, for all these years, silence has been the best approach. This will be the last episode of the podcast for a little while. It's okay, don't cry. Stay subscribed and you'll get a notice when new episodes come around. In the meantime, if you want to continue this conversation about how legalization may change America, send us a voice memo about how marijuana legalization is changing your life or your community and send it to podcast at gannett.com. That's P-O-T-C-A-S-T at G-A-N-N-E-T-T dot com put my life in the subject line of your email and include your name and where you're from. Feel free, too, to share thoughts with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Podcast, Podcast. We'd love to hear from you and know who you'd like us to interview, what ideas you want us to explore, or what views you'd like to hear. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and then subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. You can also follow our marijuana legalization coverage year-round at the Reno Gazette Journal on rgj.com and at USA Today on usatoday.com. Again, a million thank yous to those of you who have been listening, chatting with us on social media and subscribing to us and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. All of you guys seriously have made all of this work totally worth it. It's meant the world to us that you guys have enjoyed listening to the podcast as much as we've enjoyed making it. Stay tuned for more in the future, and we'll talk to you soon.
3: Balança, balança, balança,
1: balança, mais não cai.